notice uh, in Nehemiah 1 how an extraordinary God calls ordinary people to extraordinary tasks of faith. And this call demands for us an answer to the question, who are we living for? Nehemiah, he lives for God. Nehemiah trusts God's covenant promises with his people, the Jews, and he lines his life to live according to it. Nehemiah recalls the covenant God made in the persistent prayer of the second half of Nehemiah 1. God is praised, sin is confessed, the conditions of the covenant are remembered, and the hope and promise of redemption is declared. Nehemiah is preparing to take up an extraordinary task of faith. And everything, his very life, is going to be at risk because Nehemiah trusts God. Nehemiah has been confronted with the destitute reality of his people's current situation. He sees an opportunity, the responsibility to take up a task of faith and to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Nehemiah's vision includes the transformation of the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, back into a safe, defensible city. But Nehemiah's vision is so much bigger than a wall-themed Grand Designs episode. Nehemiah and his uh, peer Ezra dream is the transformation of, a broken, of the broken hearts of God's people. They're creating a space for the revival of the Jewish culture. And when we see this within the grand picture of the storyline of the Bible, we see that God is protecting and restoring the nation from which his promised Messiah will come. Now, Nehemiah, we heard uh, a few weeks ago, he's the royal cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, just for interest's sake, this is the son of King Xerxes, who had Esther as one of his wives. So Esther and Nehemiah quite close together within the Bible. And during Nehemiah's prayer-filled months of preparation, can't you just hear those words of Mordecai to Esther just a generation before in the same court uh, that Nehemiah serves in? Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Now, don't be confused. Nehemiah is just an ordinary palace servant, most likely a child of the exile like Daniel, who was noticed and in time promoted to royal cupbearer position, a position that did give him direct access to the king. So today we've come to the crunch point in the story. Today in chapter 2, Nehemiah must risk it all and prove his faith with action at a king's table. So we've set the stage for Nehemiah, now let's set the stage for us. Who are you living for? If you're a Christian, you've committed to following and living for God. Your life is dedicated to following God's promised Messiah, the King Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, I hope today will give you an opportunity to experience and to explore more why we are. Today I want to bring you a report like Hananiah did uh, to Nehemiah. In many ways, we've, we've already heard a, a report on our world from Beck today, um, and I just want to build on that. Hear the pain 
and hurt in the words from, these are all quotes from children in our community. My parents divorced on Christmas Day. All my friends have left me. This, was, this next one was somewhat alarming, but yet with a measure of hope. I no longer feel like killing myself. I'm a B student. And that's not good enough for my parents. There's this innocence in young people that provides a mirror into our world. Our world is hurting. Our community is filled with broken hearts. And in a negative sense, we are far better at putting up walls than Nehemiah ever was. We might have this polished outside, but this inner world, the inner world of people in our community is crumbling, or at least those I listen to. But we do not lack hope. Nehemiah looked back to the covenant promises of God and saw his community's means of transformation, of redemption. We must learn from Nehemiah to create the space for Christian revival. We must lay that foundation of prayer and be ready to use every resource, every relationship God has given us and take faith-filled, God-dependent risk to make disciples of God's promised king. Today is a crunch point in Nehemiah's story, but it's also a crunch point in yours. When you see the world around you, how are you responding to God's call? Will you take this next step of faith to deeper, dare I say riskier, faith in Jesus? So open up your Bibles, and we're going to have it up on the screen as well, to Nehemiah chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 8. We're going to read today's story in full. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Ashpah, the, le- the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, 
and for the walls of the city and for the house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Today's culture, it has an obsession with superheroes. Uh, in the last decade alone, Marvel has released 20 new superhero movies, with another three just to come out this year. And now, we no longer just watch superhero movies. Uh, we can be them. Video game after video game lets you save the day. And it's, it's not just in teenagers' bedrooms uh, that we buy into this messianic superhero mentality. Western culture has long seen itself as the superhero of the world. Conflict after conflict, the Western world has bought into the cultural narrative that we're the good guys who save the innocent people from the bad guys. And without commenting on this story, on this cultural narrative, we must be careful, though, for the barrier that it can provide in learning from the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. We can look to the Old, Ter Old Testament um, characters as these kind of pin-up superheroes of the past. And definitely, their stories are told in the Bible for us to learn from. But we must never forget that God is the true super superhero of the Bible. These other characters, they're at best the sidekicks pointing to the true hero. Remember the humble but very true words of John the Baptist. Someone more powerful is going to come. And I am not good enough even to stoop down and untie his sandals. Nehemiah is no exception. He is no doubt a great man of faith, but he is not the saviour. He is not the hero. He is dependent upon God and gives God all of the glory. So consider with me the emotional ride that Nehemiah goes on throughout this story. Uh, verses 1 to 2, Nehemiah is sad. Uh, the ESV is perhaps a bit gentle in its translation. Nehemiah is devastated. The word depressed could be used. I love how King Artaxerxes describes uh, Nehemiah's state. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now, that the king takes notice of Nehemiah, that sets off his next emotional roller coaster. Because for Nehemiah, he's now terrified. Now, by all, all expectations and protocol, Nehemiah has just made a colossal professional mistake. Um, there is a very clear reason why this is the first time Nehemiah has ever been sad in the king's presence. As a palace servant, especially as a cupbearer in the presence of the king, such unprofessionalism could bear the punishment of death. Kings didn't like gloomy servants. The king had asked for an explanation. Now, Nehemiah has a choice. Will he be honest and risk displeasing the king very potentially at the cost of his life? Or will he hide the truth? Let me jump you back uh, to Ezra 4 to help you see what is at stake for Nehemiah. 
In the book of Ezra, an earlier wave of exiles had returned by uh, the king before Artaxerxes, King Cyrus of Persia. And they had been sent to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. Now, their enemies around them did not like this, so they tried to stop them, and they were quite successful. They sent letters, and one of those letters they sent uh, to the eventual king, Artaxerxes. And here is the summary of the letter in Ezra 4.16. We made known to the king that if this city, talking about Jerusalem, is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Let these guys rebuild. You're going to have a rebellious nation on your hand. The summary of Artaxerxes' reply in Ezra 4.21. Therefore, make a decree that these men shall be made to cease, and that this city is not rebuilt until a decree is being made by me. So Jerusalem's state of disrepair is in part the result of King Artaxerxes' decree. So Nehemiah has this added challenge of having to change the king's mind on what he has very publicly already decreed. So what would you do? Let's ask it a different way. What do you do when given the choice between honesty, putting the truth of your situation out there, or hiding? Now, honesty today probably will not cost you your life, but it will cost. One of those comments that came from youth in our community that we heard earlier started from a conversation like this. Hi, how are you? The youth was straight with me. Do you want the honest answer? Honesty may cost. A little embarrassment, perhaps. Definitely that loss of that polished outer world that we're so good at betraying. But it is through honesty that help can come. Hide and help hides too. And as Christians, we really need to get better at this. I'm not saying bear your heart to anyone. But build into your life the sort of relationships, discipleship relationships... Christians lay the foundation of honest relationships with other Christians so that when it counts, you will find it much easier before to be honest before others. So this is what we're doing for all our youth and children's leaders. They're being encouraged to have a one-up discipleship relationship. This is a more mature Christian who can commit to listening to, to investing in and praying with them, maybe once a week, once a fortnight, once a month. Our leaders are committing to this honest relationship so that they will find it much easier to be honest before others, and especially before young people, when it really counts. So who can you ask to be your one-up discipleship relationship at church today? I encourage you, this is the one time where if you want to send a a text message in church, just go do it. Put it into practice. Make it happen. Commit, my suggestion is, to meeting up six times. Kind of anything less than that and you don't get over the initial awkwardness. But take the time to commit to an honest and bold relationship. 
Too many opportunities have been lost because we have been afraid and hidden when we needed to be bold and honest. Nehemiah answers with boldness and honesty that he has practiced in months of preparation, months of prayer before God. He also adds in some wise uh, flattery and appeals to some nice Persian values. So Nehemiah's description of the city, the place of my father's graves, is a carefully chosen wording. The the Persians revered their ancestors and their graves were considered sacred places. So Nehemiah is careful. He finds this connection point as he makes his case to the king. And he gets a somewhat neutral response, but he gets an opportunity. Um, The king responds, what are you requesting? It's time to commit. But Nehemiah knows what he needs to do first. Uh, Four months of preparation and prayer, all for this moment. Uh, In many ways, his whole cultural heritage is on the line. At a human level, even the promises of God appear on trial. At a personal level, Nehemiah is risking the lethal displeasure of telling a king, you got it wrong. So when you are at your max stress level, what do you turn to? When the pressure is on, how will you respond? I love Nehemiah's default response. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I'm going to bet that this was not a long prayer. He's got a king waiting before him. But we saw last week the prayer of preparation Uh, that that he was all behind the foundation of this arrow prayer. Um, We're going to have an opportunity. uh, We talked about being bold and honest just before. Let's practice it right now. Let's have a bit of audience participation. Hands up if you brushed your teeth this morning. It's most of you. (laughs) Now, If I never brush my teeth, I do, but if I never brush my teeth, um, will this once-off, will a once-off two-minute brush stop decay happening in my mouth? Jake thinks yes. (laughs) Or perhaps Chris. You know, we can smile with confidence, not based on two minutes of brushing our teeth this morning, but the months of habit, that two minutes, morning and night, keeps the decay away. And it is true also for Nehemiah's habit of prayer. It wasn't this, this moment, this, this seconds before the king of prayer that enabled him to have confidence It was the foundation behind it, the consistent pattern of investing in spiritual disciplines, starting with just two minutes a day. And the habits that we build in, the habits that we invest in, they become our coping mechanism when the pressure is on. So what habits do you invest in? Because they are what you will turn to when the pressure is on. Um, Again, there is no time like the present to start a new habit. So we're going to take the next two minutes 
and the time it would take you to brush your teeth, take some time in prayer with God. Again, this will not stop the decay, but it can be the beginning of a habit. So you're going to get two minutes of silence. Um, If you're looking for something to help your prayers, maybe flick back in your Bible to Nehemiah 1. There's a great prayer to inspire you there. But let's take two minutes before God to begin practicing that habit of prayer. And together we can all say, Amen. I hope your mind is feeling a little bit clearer, that you are feeling a little bit nearer to God. And if you are looking for some more support in prayer, one, look to those discipleship relationships, but also five o'clock, come back. We're going to pray again together. And also you can be supporting others in prayer. We can finally be reminded of the content of Nehemiah's request to the king's response. We're finally at the crunch point. Nehemiah requests permission to return, rebuild, and to be royally resourced. That's my three hours for the day. The king is pleased and grants Nehemiah's request. And before we go and celebrate Nehemiah, look at the final line. Look at verse 8. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but uh, it can be easy to want to turn Nehemiah into Nehemiah's top 10 leadership principles for success, wealth, and happiness. But this is, what, this is never what Nehemiah intended. Look to where Nehemiah points. God is the hero, not Nehemiah. I love that uh, Nehemiah literally lives the words of Solomon, who knew or two 
who knew a thing or two about building, building up Jerusalem. It's Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So let's bring it all together. Learn from the practices of Nehemiah's faith in God. Build spiritual habits now to repair you with God-focused coping strategies when the pressure comes. Prepare yourself to respond to opportunities with bold and risky honesty. And never forget, in pressure and especially in success, that God is the true superhero of the story. The book of Nehemiah is a call to take great confidence in the God who arises and builds his church. Nehemiah 2 shows us the God who has risen and is at work in the hearts of a king and a cupbearer to rebuild a city in preparation for the coming of the greatest King Jesus. I love that when King Jesus came, we discover the same God at work. Jesus arises and builds his church, preparing disciple makers for the task. So to wrap up, I want to share my excitement for our church's renewed capture of God's vision to make disciples. God is the hero of disciple making, not a program, not a leader. The Bible is clear that making disciples is God's way to build his church. And I'm very excited to discover with you the church that God is actively building here at North Pine Baptist. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, we pray that you will arise and build your church here. We thank you that we can trust, we can have the confidence in the way that you have continued to do that throughout history. In the time of Nehemiah, when Jesus was on the earth, and Lord, you continue to do so today. Lord, as disciples of you, help us to invest in those relationships that will build us up. Help us to invest in those habits that will prepare us to cope well to focus on you when the pressure is on. And Lord, we pray that we will be bold and honest and not hide away from the opportunities to, to declare that you are our king. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. Thanks for that, Isaac, and uh, we praise God for him speaking to us today through his word. To this, uh, as we come to our close our service this morning, our final song reflects the fact that uh, our desire should be that all glory be to God. And as I, uh, Isaac reminded us there from Psalm 127, verse 1, it says...